This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The Colorado Avalanche season ends in a uh, sooner than expected fashion as they lose in Game 7 to the Seattle Kraken and to uh, old friend Philip Grubauer had himself a pretty good game in Game 7. Joining us now to talk about it and what comes next is the beat writer for the Denver Gazette covering the Avalanche, Kyle Fredrickson. You can follow him on Twitter at Kyle Fredrickson. That's F-R-E-D-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Kyle, obviously, uh, the game last night, after playing such a good first period, not being able to break through, you know, following this end of the, the season, had to be some mixture of shock, disappointment, and anger coming from this team. How do you think that they took this? They're frustrated, but we, when we talked last week, we sort of knew that maybe given the pieces that had fallen off the side of the wagon, that making it all the way to Stanley Cup Finals would have been a very, very difficult pull anyway. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And, you know, I... I thinking about that post-game dressing room, and it actually lasted a little bit longer than I expected with us getting to talk to quite a few guys. Everyone was just exhausted. I mean, this was yeah. a team that really spent everything it had. And give them credit, I really felt like they played their best hockey in, in games six and seven. And you mentioned Bauer really being the difference between yeah. this team, you know, advancing and us, us you know, having a different conversation here today. But, yeah, it's just with everything that went on and all the adversity, it, it, you know, I think McKinnon kind of said it best. You know, he's a good barometer for how this team's feeling. Uh, he even said, you know, yeah, during the regular season, we, you know, we say all the right things yeah. and we're trying to do all the right things. But this is crazy. I mean, look at the, the man games lost. Look at the people who are out of this room. Um, you know, I think even as soon as today, there's probably a good chunk of those guys who are shifting gears from, you know, being angry and then wishing they were moving on, thinking, wow, what a what an accomplishment that we had uh, with kind of the zombie avalanche this year with just everything um, that went down. So it certainly kind of started to spiral even more in the series with, with Val going out and all that drama as well. But, um, you know, for me, that was kind of the, the straw that broke the back yeah. there probably for, for what this team could handle and also expect to win. And it wasn't just uh, losing a player of value. It was the whole scene around it, all the cloak and dagger stuff, which the the Avalanche still obviously haven't addressed. Uh, In our society, you tend to assume at some point the truth will come out, uh, and it may or may not make the Avalanche look any better or any worse. We don't don't know that. But I I really thought, and I think we talked to you about this the other day, it cast a pall over the proceedings, and really, by their own admission, took the Avalanche uh, into the sixth game before they really engaged in the series. I thought, uh, you know, they could have lost any of the first five games and could easily have lost four of them. And the series would have been over after five games. Yeah, I mean, the series kind of played out how the individual games did. The Avs were just clawing back constantly, and it just, it felt like they were never really playing from ahead, and that's because they weren't. And Val's absence was huge in that. And you're right. I think, you know, this, is, this isn't surprising, I think, for people who know this team and understand the tradition of the public relations and sort of, you know, protecting team image above all else. But as you and I both know, that when professional sports franchises and college sports teams when they go that route, when they choose to, to hide the truth and, and hide behind either one statement or no statement, 
I think bad things can happen. And I'm not going to say that that's going to happen in this case, but I do think it's unfortunate that they don't even address the fact that this crisis report exists, right? I think the baseline for an organization <laughs> right, is that's say, a fact. we are aware this happened. This is, this is something the organization is dealing with, and that's all we're going to say. And I know that maybe doesn't sound like a much to listeners, but from a media perspective, that's big. It's more that than you got. Team- it's more right, than you exactly. got. Exactly. Right, and, and that's what allows the speculation to happen. And for me, uh, just the lack of optimism heading into this offseason about what Val's standing is going to be with the team because maybe he figures it out. Maybe this is some personal deal that you know isn't as bad as it might look on paper, um, but it sure doesn't appear that way. And, and Val's a huge piece of this team, and it was a huge reason why their depth got exposed so badly is because it was yet another guy from that top six who's gone and, and someone else who's having to get plugged in who, let's be honest, probably doesn't have business you know, playing in that group. So um, a lot of issues there. But, yeah, with, with Val, it, it is unfortunate that, it, you know, for what was a fun playoffs, kind of put a, a, a dark twist on things. Now going into that offseason, we'll obviously put the Jushkin situation aside, and I think I think you really made very good cogent points about why, because we talk about this at times, why that obfuscation is not, helpful even though it maybe feels like it at the time because you really opened the door to a lot of things and and then if something ends up being a little worse than you let on now it really looks like you've been hiding something but for the for the avalanche that's the risk they've decided to take we know though that they need more depth and i I started our show talking about a guy like logan o'connor and he doesn't make a lot of money but it felt to me like the seattle kraken have a lot of logan o'connors and the avs don't anymore now they're likely to lose jt comfort that's going to be a big part of it they do have enough cap room to play with, even though they're not adding stars. Do you believe they'll be aggressive enough in adding these kind of role players, these these bottom, you know, the, you're talking about the bottom two lines? Can they continue to add to that, or is it something that they believe they're going to fill out through prospects? Yeah, it is kind of the big question here, and it's the first real big test for Chris McFarland. You know, I think he always sort of points, points to this being a brain trust with him and Joe Sackick and them both running the show, but... These are his decisions to make about what this depth is going to look like because, you know, I think early in the year we looked at some of these moves that they made with, hey, Evan Rodriguez coming in, that's a that's a good deal. Oh, well, you know, Alex Newhook, he's, he's primed to have a breakout season to be that second-line center. And neither of those things happened, right? So to me, I'm wondering, all right, does McFarland see this as maybe a lesson that, hey, you, you know, you can rely on, on your guys in-house, but it's not going to get you to a championship? And, or maybe he now he's thinking, all right, let's kind of leverage, you know, maybe a, a player that we have or, or leverage, uh, you know, future assets to, to bring in someone who's more, you know, on plane with Kadri. And I know the team tried to do that before the trade deadline. I mean, these things are complicated and, and both sides have to agree. And, and I know fans would love it if just, you know, the best player available wanted to come to the Avalanche. There's a lot of things to like about the Avs. You know, it's a winning culture. They got one of the worst practice facilities in the league. Another conversation as well. But you know, the, the, there's a lot of things that the Avs are going to have to figure out with roster construction and, and who they bring in. I I'm in the camp of of swinging a little bigger. You know, I, I JT Comper is going to get a little bit more than what the Avs are willing to pay him. Right. And I think the Avs are fine with that. I mean, you, you look at what happened in the playoffs. That second line disappeared, and all of a sudden you got Lars Eller. You know, the one of their last guys they added before the deadline he's jumping in playing second line center so it shows me that the avalanche really didn't trust that group and and they're going to have to figure it out because you know when you have that core of superstars in a flat cap era you got to have a few guys on entry-level contracts to your point the 
the Logan O'Connors, some of these other dudes who were playing above their pay grade. Uh, and it just seemed like the ads, you know, to your point, didn't have that this year. Alex Newhook, you mentioned, does he at this point regress, uh, regressive as his play was this year, uh, does he now deservedly belong in the camp of uh, other first-round draft busts? I think so. He's he's trending that direction. Yeah. You know, I there was so much so much optimism early in the year. I, one of the things that resonated for me from training camp was Bednar kind of said, "Hey, that second line center job is his to lose to start the season." And he lost. And then I swear it was like four or five games into the year, and all of a sudden it was like, "Oh, well, that's no longer the plan." Um, so to me, that was a, an initial red flag in all of this, and it's a bummer because you know if you ask me, you know, which player in that dressing room. I'd most like to get a beer with. It probably is Alex Newhook. He's so down to earth, a uh, younger dude that has a lot of perspective, you know, a lot of respect for, for the rest of his teammates. I always go to him for, for feature stories when I want to get, you know, players talking about the guy. Uh, but yeah, to this point, I mean, it's, it's fair to wonder how much longer the abs are going to give him to, to be a top six contributor, which, you know, based on, you know, where he was drafted and the expectations, that's, that's where they want him to be. So, yeah, I think when we talk about players who could be on the move or players, you know, who who aren't filling expectations, Newhook being a restricted free agent next year, let's let's see what what the Avs want to do. You know, there it's, it's kind of part of this big equation of of figuring out who those right players are going to be. But you know, maybe McFarland's in the camp of get this roster healthy, let's run it back, and and we feel like we have a solid chance. And you know, it's not the sexy option, but I think that there's a lot to like about that as well. I mean, this is a team that was the number two seed. They didn't earn that, and they earned that through a lot of adversity. And then you hope that you know things will get better over the course of the season. Perhaps Natchushkin gets things straight. Perhaps it's not really a problem, as Sandy brought up. You know, it's easy to look at M. Kadri now and talk about how his performance was, but uh, at one point he was persona non grata after his playoff yes. suspension the year prior, and he managed to come back right. and make it work. So you don't necessarily close the door on Natchushkin here, especially if it doesn't result in any sort of legal ramifications. Maybe you let him get right and come back and. And, and there's something to that, but uh, you, you talked about how tired everyone was. Yeah. With the, the idea of of defending a Stanley Cup, it's something that I, I think when people look at maybe what the Tampa Bay Lightning did and, and almost, you know, made three in a, in a short span of time. Right. How difficult it really is. I mean, that the, there are injuries. There are teams gunning for you every single game. And, and you have teams that, in this case, with the star power of the Avs, you know, with the depth disappeared and things are up at the top line. Uh, Seattle was able to stack against that, still have enough role players to be able to steal the series away. And so for the Avs, did you get the impression there was any sort of uh, anger or frustration about the way this ended, or was it more just they're worn out? Yeah, I think a little bit of both. It depends on, on who you ask, right? <laughs> and just yes, going sure around does. the room. Thinking of a you number know, 29 and, and, in particular. Right, yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, he was pretty calm and collective yeah, for the most he was, part. He was pretty calm last night. Yeah, yeah, but but you know, he does bring that intensity, and and you know, I, I think that was sort of like a release for him in some way that the season was over, and he could talk about the season in terms of, yeah, this is really hard. Like, can you guys believe this? Because like Nate's never going to say that in the regular season. But that, that's kind of the vibe I got. But you know, it, it it's different vibes for different guys. The you know, the player who stood out to me most in the locker room. Uh, was Eric Johnson. You know, he was the most vis- visibly emotional, yes. you know, red eyes, a little teary-eyed. Right. 
And I get it, right? 13 years, you know, playing for the Avs. He's the longest tenured current professional athlete in the state. He's, you know, he had the A at one point, and then he dropped it when Kale McCarr came in the picture. He's a he's a veteran who's been willing to adjust his role to fit the needs of his team. You know, it's like it's a coach's dream. But at some point, you know, he's his contract is up, and yep. he's aging, and, and the Avs have to make making a, a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, and I will say, you know, as we're talking about Avs PR, not to harp too much, but they don't do exit interviews, right? So, like, we won't get, like, a, a cooling-off period and a time to say, hey, you know, tell us about your future, reflect on the season. That's the best time to, to get some of that stuff. Well, instead, without that opportunity, there we are, two minutes after the game, asking Eric Johnson, what about your future with the team? Do you think you're going to be back? Um, you know, and he's a pro, so you know, he handled it well and, and, and gave a very heartfelt answer. But I do feel bad for those guys because in that moment, we're doing our best to try to, you know, gauge the, the future all in that moment when they're really kind of coming to terms with, with all of this being over. But for the most part, you know, it wasn't a lot of anger um, just because of just how difficult and long this season's been. But the expectations are there, right? I mean, if, if, if you want to take a big picture look at this thing, this was the defending Stanley Cup champion that had a very good roster, won the division still, and they're out in the first round. I mean, I think verifiably, you know, that that is a, a failed season if, if you really want to win a cup every year. But the human element of that is, you know, as Giannis explained so mm-hmm. eloquently, uh, it's a lot more complicated. Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, uh, we played that clip last week. It's a very, very uh, instructional. Uh, this has been a weird year though in the playoffs so far uh you're gonna have either the rangers or the devils go out tonight boston's out the defending cup champions are out at the hands of an expansion team and you had two game sevens yesterday that were essentially failures for the home teams now the avalanche weren't very good at home this year compared at least to what they were on the road Boston was a juggernaut, and they had a they had a one goal lead in Game Seven with a minute to go and couldn't hold on and and lost. Right. So I I think again there's evidence there was wasn't there one stretch here in the playoffs where road teams won eleven straight games. I, I mean it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It's nothing like the NBA playoffs, and and hockey is I'm sure you've discovered is the one sport the National Hockey League that changes the most from the regular season to the playoffs. Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, but it is funny. You you mentioned the home and away thing. We were joking before the Game 7 started. We were like, if if you win the division, you should be able to defer home ice advantage. <laughs> like, no, no, we're good. You guys got it. We, we play better on the road. Yeah. This is, this yeah, is our thing, it. right? Because that's, that's almost what's Act become. They, they might have been better off playing all the games in Seattle. No matter what series. <laughs> exactly. You're right. Exactly. So, you know, it's hard to predict. That's why we love sports to, to one degree. But, yeah, I think it's, it's uniquely hockey, the, what we've seen this year, with how close the division standings are and how different the playoffs are from the regular season. And, you know, while we kind of talk about this sport as a whole and, and, and you know, why the playoffs are so special, I am a little bit shocked at sort of just sort of the fawning that goes over, uh, you know, the amount of toughness these guys show. Because, yes, obviously it's amazing what Andrew Cogliano did. He came back into that game in game six. Unbelievable. And played yeah. with a broken neck. That's yeah. phenomenal. Like, hats off to the guy. But at the same point, at what point is a society or a sports society 
Are we saying, yes, we should just pump this guy full of Toradol or whatever painkiller he got? Because let's be honest, he's not going back in the game without that feeling numb. And then going out and, and risking it all for his team. Yeah. Like, it's, it's valiant, but this guy isn't a... You know, he's not fighting for his country. He's not fighting for his family. He's playing a game. And, and at that point, his health is that serious risk. And for me, that's just one example. But you see all these hits and, and the talks about suspensions and, and guys going down. It's such a physical game. And, you know, I don't want to sit here and say they got to pick fighting out of hockey and, and that, that all has to change. But I do wonder if the, if the NHL is a little bit behind in addressing some of that player safety just because it seems like such a more violent sport than the others, and yet football gets such well, more the that magnifying glass. And, 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 you know? and, and that's of, been really interesting to me. Yeah, the method of meeting out discipline, which, by the way, I made clear almost an hour and a half ago, had nothing to do with the outcome of the series, but how right. Jordan Eberle, uh, who clearly intended to drive a former teammate into the boys. That, yeah, that's telling, too. Uh, I mean, and didn't even have a hearing about a possible suspension, much less a suspension being meted out. Uh, the NHL is not serious on this matter. It just yeah. isn't. And that has always been my criticism of Bettman, who, who yeah. I, I've always been disappointed at. I, I think he's been a lousy uh, commissioner uh, and People have, maybe including myself, have given him a breakdown through the years, but he has utterly failed, utterly failed in addressing player safety in a serious way. Utterly yeah, failed. Yeah, it's, it, it's crazy. And, you know, it's, it's as simple as this for me. It's the NHL saying that their process works one way and then they acting out that process in another way. Because their whole explanation for why that hit on Cogliano didn't lead to a suspension was that because when they monitor hits, they don't take the health of the player into account until after they deem hit a hit is worthy of suspension. So, right, it's got to get past that first step. Like, let's just look at this hit. Do we think it's worthy of suspension? But that's not how the NHL works. It's clear that they're taking account of the player's health immediately after into their decisions, right? If Andrew Cogliano doesn't come back into that game and the next day it's announced that he broke his neck, Watch Everly get one, two game suspension only because okay, the NHL he shouldn't be playing in game one of the next series either. Right, exactly, because that's how how bad it is. And I think you know there should be some level of accountability of this suspension matches what the pain was caused for it. Right, this hit led this guy to be this many games. You know, there should be some kind of eye for an eye there for me if we're really going to be fair on penalizing guys and making them think about how they're going to change their game, right? Like lost in this whole conversation is why does player safety even exist and dole out these fines is to try to take stuff out of the game and make it cleaner, but they're not doing it. They're just becoming a laughing stock. Like if, if guys are getting fined, they're not changing the way they play. What does every guy say after they, they get a suspension? Oh, well, everyone knows my game. I don't play like that. That's, that's not me. Well, that's fine, but you got suspended because you did something that the league deemed that shouldn't be done. You know, maybe the conversation needs to shift to let's make a safer, safer game instead of why aren't we, pu- you know, punishing the offenders? But that's just my take.
And it is obviously a question for the offseason, which the Colorado Avalanche entered much sooner than they rather would have. And uh, quite frankly, they were outplayed. That's the reality of it. Kyle Fredrickson uh, on joining us from the Denver Gazette. Make sure you check out denvergazette.com and check out Kyle in particular. That's Kyle Fredrickson, F-R-E-D-R-I-C-K-S-O-N. Uh, thanks so much, Kyle. This is going to be a, an intriguing offseason. I imagine we'll uh, get a better idea of where the Avs are after they uh, catch a couple breaths. Uh, get caught up on some rest, and then, of course, probably find out what's going on with Nachushkin. Not that uh, we're going to find out anytime soon, I suppose. Thank you for the time. Yeah, yeah, thanks, no Kyle. doubt. Yeah, no, no, no shortage of storylines on these guys, for sure. Thank you, guys. <laughs> yeah, thanks. It'll be a very, very interesting well, offseason for the they, They'll have uh, two months longer uh, during their offseason this year than they had a year ago. They well, most certainly will. And uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's been a run, and it's unfortunate it ended the way it ended, but it sort of became clear this team wasn't repeating. And if they aren't going to repeat uh, as a fan, you know, do you want that Band-Aid to just yank it off or do you want to wait for it to fall off? That's kind of the question. Curious what you think. It's 303-831-1340. We'll be back with more in a moment in Mile High Sports. Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar, presented by Burnham Law. Hire the winner at BurnhamLaw.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. As the Avalanche season comes to an end, want to make sure we uh, get your thoughts on it. To that end, Dave has joined us on the phone. Dave, you had a couple questions uh, about the abs, apparently, for Sandy and I. Thanks for, for joining us. Well, I actually have a statement. The hit by Eberle was classic boarding at any level. My kids have been playing high level from Boston to San Diego tournament. He hit him directly in the back and drove his head into the dasher. That is a five-minute major at any level of hockey, first off. you I, The moment he did that, I was like, man, he suffered a concussion and he got hurt really bad. You could just tell that. I've seen that time after time at many a tournament. So that was colossal bad officiating right there. I mean, first off, they teach kids at every age not to hit from behind. I mean, the game is totally ref different at lower levels, even the college level. You know, the first the guys have got to protect each other out there. You know, because you you can maim people. Well, the thing so, I've never quite understood is that hockey is perhaps clearly the most team-oriented sport and also the sport for which allegedly players have more respect for one another than they do in other sports and yet in actual practice you don't see that respect play out on the ice maybe it does in the handshake lines but it doesn't play out on the ice even during the playoffs when it's usually a pretty good idea, no matter who you are, to stay out of the penalty box as much as possible and avoid the kind of gratuitous hit that Eberly put on Cogliano. And, and I want to insert also that McCarr did as well on McCann. Absolutely. And he deserved his one-game suspension. But McCarr made a mistake. Clearly, he didn't think that there was anything going on with the puck that it was actually 
over the netting and into the stands and whatever. And he made a mistake and he deserved the suspension he got for that mistake. And the avalanche arguably lost a game because the penalty subsequently resulted in a power play goal by Seattle. But Everly got nothing, and I agree with Kyle Fredrickson, he got nothing because Cogliano came back into the game and appeared to be okay. The number one problem in the in hockey is they let the stuff go in the NHL. And I remember a couple of years ago, DU was playing in the uh, Frozen, or not in the Frozen Four, but in the NCAA tournament, and the yeah. guy hit, hit somebody in the head, and it was five minutes, and he was gone. And uh, Butcher Grass and, uh, oh, I can't think of his name. Barry Melrose. With, yeah, Barry Melrose says that's exactly how you call it. Yep, and it was he's exactly. right. Barry's right about that. Yeah. Barry, Barry's right. But and the college game, game the, the college game is much, much better uh, than the so, NHL. I'm not, I'm not saying the officiating is better, but they're better in handling safety issues. Yeah. Much better, much more serious about it uh, than the <laughs> NHL. The problem that bothers me at hockey is the scrums afterwards is that all you have to do is call some penalties right off at the beginning and you'll stop that, you know, where the guys basically they're maiming you in front of the net, putting the stick in your back, you know, putting it up to your neck, going to your throat, that stuff. None of that needs to happen. I've had a kid play for 15 years. He just finished his high school season. He's played four years of high school hockey and never took a penalty. Not saying he's out there. He, he doesn't really hit people that much, but you can play the game safely. It doesn't need to be that. And my kid was player of the year in all state two years in a row. So it isn't like he was just a scrub. He wasn't, you know. But there's kids that go out there, and they see what the NHL guys do, and they'll jump on top of him and start beating him because you got to get the guys going. Well, that's a bunch of BS. Well, I appreciate it, uh, Dave. Thank you very much for, for yeah, the thanks, input. Dave. It's always great well, to, have, uh, to talk about the, the kind of stuff, and it's important, obviously. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. Uh, there's always the idea of, you know, but what are the children? And I, I, I get that. I, I do respect it. I think that when you're looking at the NHL, um, it exists to a certain extent, Um as its own thing. And I think when you talk about youth sports, and I've, I've coached youth sports before too, uh, I think one of the things that I think maybe that I would disagree with, with Dave on is the idea that um, when, a, when a kid in youth, and I don't want to get too far with the topic, when a kid in youth sports you know, does something, goes, oh, that's just what I saw on TV. No, that's no, no, no. We see all sorts of things on TV. You're responsible for the thing you do for oh, whatever yeah. reason. And, and uh, I believe, you know, could, could the uh, NHL do better in its safety? Yes. Would that immediately fix youth sports playing? No. No, it wouldn't. They're different animals. And the, uh, the, the kids have to be parented and the kids have to be coached in, in, like their kids. And that's part of the equation, too. But I, I do get the point that, that it is applied inconsistently. And the point you made, I thought, Sandy, is interesting, too, um, especially about hockey and its uh, – the idea that yeah, this is the 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 sport that sort of holds itself up. Oh, we have such great, you know, support and everyone believes in everyone. Everyone's hockey, but uh, more than any sport I can think of, including football, which has the opportunity for an extraordinary amount of cheap shots. Cheapest shots are in hockey. 
Oh, and, I, and as you point out, Everly and Cogliano were teammates. Yes, in Edmonton. <laughs> years mean, ago. I mean, this is, uh, yeah. and, and that's the thing. And, and a guy like a Kale McCarr. But, who's but a, it doesn't matter. It, it doesn't no, you, seem to matter it doesn't. to a guy like Everly. Uh, it, it doesn't. It, it, the fact that you were uh, playing alongside someone, it, it does, doesn't seem to matter. He's there. You run him. Um, you know, it, it, uh, where my, I won't say my preference, but I, I, I will say this. My allegiance to the college game is based or was 50 years ago when I first basically started watching college hockey. It was based on the fact that I thought the college kids played harder and the pros coasted which I think 50 years ago was true, and the pro game was needlessly violent uh, back then, again, compared to the college game, although there were uh, some rather memorable college games that uh, certainly weren't sparing when it came to uh, violent activity and lots of fighting and so on. Now, I... I don't notice that the gap in pace or in effort is as extreme, but the player safety issue is taken much more seriously, in my opinion, by the college teams and by the NCAA than the NHL takes player safety mm-hmm. seriously. I, I, I think there is a wide gulf. And it's one turnoff for me when it comes to the NHL vis-a-vis college hockey. It used to be effort, and now it's the total disregard for player safety exhibited quite often, not always, but quite often by the NHL. Total disregard, and the Cogliano case is a perfect example of that, where you don't even make the guy show up for a hearing. You You can't even do that. And I agree with Kyle. He should have been suspended not only for game seven, but for at least game one, if not longer, for the next series that they are now playing in against the Dallas Stars, who have also been the victims of gratuitous violence through the loss of Joe Pavelski uh, in the playoffs very early on in the Minnesota series. And that's why I was pulling for Dallas after that, quite frankly. I had no particular rooting interest before, but I love Pavelski and uh, he kills the average, but but he's a hell of a player. And uh, now he's out and I understand McCann's out too, but that hit could have left Cogliano paralyzed. Yes. Very fortunate that that is obviously not the case. Uh, Thank goodness. But the avalanche season comes to an end. They will have to uh, one heal up. Two, get a couple things straight, and then three, find reinforcements in an offseason that is a little bit longer, as you pointed out, Sandy. Two months longer than they uh, had expected. The Denver Nuggets, however, not on vacation and looking to make theirs go even longer than that. And so, uh, you know, they're looking to get a win in game two. When you are injured, you need a win. That's why you need to talk to our friends at Burnham Law. BurnhamLaw.com, 720-845-7001. Hire the winner. Their personal injury attorneys have years of experience 
fighting for their clients' locations all over the Front Range, including Fort Collins, Boulder, Westminster, Cherry Creek, the DTC, Colorado Springs, and even in Cheyenne. When you're injured, they push for you to get the maximum recovery, whether it's by settlement or by trial. So when you're hurt, when you're injured, uh, don't go on TV and look for someone who entertains you. Go to find those folks who win. Those are the folks at Burnham Law. BurnhamLaw.com, 720-845-7001. If a Game 2 could put a stranglehold on a series, and it can't, the Nuggets would like to be able to do so because their opening win was so dominant. Following it up with something even near that would be a remarkable statement. We'll talk about the Nuggets and their Game 2 opportunity against the Suns next on Miley Sports. This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. The Denver Nuggets, after winning their Game One series against the Phoenix Suns, a uh, one twenty-five, one hundred seventy, just dominant fashion. I mean, they were extraordinary. And the the bugaboo for the Nuggets in that the third quarter, which is generally an issue, not a huge issue. They were outscored by four in that third quarter, and that of course proceeded to just march to a relatively right. easy victory. Um, the Nuggets played about as perfectly an offensive game as you can realistically expect a team to and play. And you know what? They're probably I, not going to do that again. No, but, but they played a defensive game, too. You also we shouldn't yeah, forget that. And you also don't need to win by 18. It doesn't really matter. You just have to win by one. And that's the other part. The, de- the defense, I think, is a good thing to get into, Sandy, because we know that Phoenix stripped away a lot of their depth, which was impressive, to go get Kevin Durant. Right. They, they were all in on Durant. Um, Durant had 29 points and 14 boards. It was 12 for 19 shooting. I understand why they did it. At the same time, this isn't a team that's filled with a lot of defenders. Um, Chris Paul's still got pretty quick hands, but at his age, he's not the guy that harasses you all the way down the court. Uh, Devin Booker is a remarkable athlete, but not a particularly... I wouldn't say he's any better at defense than Jamal Murray, who we're not holding up as a uh, yeah, all-star caliber he, defender. He, he, he might be marginally better, but no, I, I, I he's not going to make any all DeAndre Ayton, despite his size and strength, the guy looks like he's carved out of marble, but he's uh, not that kind of player. And uh, Remarkably passive player, too. For, yeah. for someone who appeared to have um, certainly above-average talents early on in his career, he's kind of leveled off. Some guys get better. It seems to me he's regressed. He's, he's regressed a little. And I, I begin to understand why Phoenix wasn't really all that eager, for a while at least, to give him, number him one. a big deal yeah, and that treat deal. him like an elite center. He mm-hmm. is not. He is he is barely an average NBA center. There are many centers in the Western Conference who are better players than DeAndre Ayton. And the one thing against Jokic in the past, at least, it His seemed as if he's, and not, physicality bothered he, him a bit. he's not he's not afraid of Jokic, mm-hmm. and he, he uses his size and actually defends uh, fairly intelligently against Jokic, and that would include the other day. I mean, Jokic shot 9 for 21. Nine for 21. But yeah. there are two things the Nuggets have going for them, and I think this came through. You saw a lot of their rotations kind of behind the play mm-hmm. the other day, their defensive rotations which caused turnovers from guys who usually don't Durant turn had over. Seven. Durant had seven. Seven turnovers. And Booker had three. To one assist? 
I mean, Durant had one assist and seven turnovers. And said after the game, Yee. we're not going to win a hell of a lot of games if I have one assist and seven turnovers. No, he, he, he recognized that. But, uh, you know, Christian Brown flat out took the ball away from Kevin Durant three times. Mm-hmm. Christian Brown played 14 minutes in the game. Right. And three times just, just picked the ball away yeah. from Kevin Durant. Uh, like he was, you know, picking cotton. Mm-hmm. All right? So it, it strikes me that the Nuggets right now are about as healthy as a team can be at this point in the playoffs. They're very much anti-avalanche, the right. inverse. Right. And obverse, obviously whatever. in much better shape than they were in in either of the last two years as far as mm-hmm. being healthy, not not even dinged up, it would seem, at the moment. Now, everybody's got bruises yeah. and stuff. But, but, I mean, but, the but they're about as healthy, healthy as a playoff Jokic has tape on his wrist. That's all I've seen. But here's the key. I think the Nuggets are bringing, and I mean this in the best possible way, an attitude of hostility to the proceedings that I haven't noticed from the Nuggets in 2019, 2020, 2021, 2022. All years in which they brought decent to good teams Mm -hmm. into the playoffs. But I didn't see that attitude. And maybe Murray's absence the last two years from the playoffs had something to do with that. And maybe there was a little in the bubble, but the, the bubble was such an unusual circumstance that it was hard to gauge how that was being expressed. And I think I'm again mentioned I was reading and have been reading not this all book. of it translated. And and and, and it's Ben Gulliver does a very good job of bringing out the attitudinal differences particularly in the series between the Nuggets and the Clippers. I thought Nuggets, Jazz, and Golliver did too, was was much more of an even back and forth, uh, two teams uh, who, who were relying on, on two big stars, and especially the two guards, Mitchell and uh, Murray, seemed to have the same kind of attitude. What I see, though, from this Nugget team is a kind of attitude I think is different from almost any other team that's currently in the playoffs, save for maybe Boston at times. I don't see it from Philadelphia. Didn't see it from Milwaukee uh, as much. Um, I see it with LeBron, but not so much from Anthony Davis. And I thought uh, if you're looking for an example, it doesn't necessarily have to be expressed in the way that, oh, let's say a Draymond Green expresses hostility. Right. All right? We saw a remarkable player enhance his image, if that was possible, as an all-time great yesterday when Steph Curry went off for 50 in Game 7. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't enough just to get the 50. He wanted to win that game big. And... You know, we kind of teased Michael Malone about the idea that he wants to win every quarter, and he was just in all kind of the lather the other day because they lost. If you watch the in-game interview, because uh, the Sun shot 52% in the third quarter and they outscored the Nuggets by four points, and he was all in a lather. The game was over. Malone knew the game was over, but he was all in a lather because they lost a quarter. Right. Well, Steph Curry 
wanted to win that game by 20 points yesterday. Yes. And you had Steve Kerr at the bench during the fourth quarter, and they had him mic'd up, telling Curry, you know, we'll get your rest. I, I, we have a lot of timeouts left that I will use to to make sure you're rested. Now, that was why the game was still marginally competitive. But don't you agree? Uh, and Curry was a killer yesterday yeah. and brought a is. hostile attitude to the he, he, he wants he wants to bury you. He wants to he wants to get get rid of you himself. There's there's guys that want to that want to win win games. And I think Nikola Jokic is one of those guys. He wants to win games. Uh, that that was at, at even points in his earlier career. Maybe he's questionable how big it's it's a big deal to Nikola Jokic. He wants to win games. Uh he doesn't need to him he doesn't want to necessarily embarrass you. Jamal, Cur- Jamal Murray's like that. Steph Curry's like Murray that. Murray is definitely Murray like Murray would that. like to embarrass you. Now, the difference is with Murray is, while he is an outstanding player, he is not Steph Curry all-time oh, no. great level. No. He and, hasn't and, even been an all-star he needs, yet. He needs to he temper that to an extent and understand sort of where the limits are. But what I've really been excited about, what I saw in game one, is that at times, and I've discussed this even before the, the playoffs right here, that Murray at times... Because of the way he he's wired, which is really important, I think that the Nuggets need a guy like that. At times, can do too much when the rest Try of the team to do is too not. Much. When the team's Maybe not playing take well. bad shots or make sloppy turns. He certainly did not do that in Game One. Nope. And what I expect the Suns to do tonight, I expect them to take a page from the Timberwolves. I expect them to crowd and cramp Jamal Murray. And or I at least put Booker on. in this case. At least put Booker. Now what we've seen with Jamal Murray is I think sort of the next evolution about this. And I was talking about this part of the show with Ryan Blackburn who will join us tomorrow to break down game two. Murray seems to have elevated his mental part of the game to that next level where instead of though probably his instinct tells him, oh, you're going to double me, watch what I can do. He's starting to realize, wait a minute. I already did my job by bringing the second guy over. Now I'm going to find somebody else for a wide open shot. And that's how we win. And, and you saw that develop a little bit. And I make the argument, I've, I've done that forever, I think a playoff series, especially when you're a young player, and I still consider a lot of these Nuggets young and to an extent inexperienced. A playoff series, I think, is as good as about a quarter or more of a season of experience. I just think it is. I think that it's, it's compressed. It's, it's, you know, all together. It's concentrated. And I think in Murray's case, you've seen him take that next step of look at what I, I now I can do what necessary, not necessarily Nicole Yokes with the flashiness, but now I can facilitate. Yeah. I brought someone over. I'll facilitate now. We talked about his uh, nine assists in game one. And so I think the time that it worked for the, the Timberwolves, and my, mind you, it worked once for the Timberwolves, the Murray and the Nuggets adjusted. I, I suspect the Suns will try to do the same thing. Yeah. And I don't think it'll work either. So as long as the other Nuggets players are still hitting their open and available shots, I think they they stand a really good chance of winning this game again, especially if they put forth the same defensive effort because both of these teams can score at times almost at will. The question is who wants to do the hard work in stopping it? And the truth of the matter is, at least in game one, the Nuggets seem far more interested in playing defense than the Suns. And that's not new. The Suns with before Durant and after Durant allow extraordinarily high numbers. They, they assume they'll outscore you because they're just tremendous shooters. Uh, most of the time it works. But this is a team in Denver that, we haven't said this too often, not only are they the better defensive team, they have more interest in playing defense. We mentioned Phoenix took five threes in the first half the other day. 
the league average per half throughout the year, 17 and a half. And I think it was kind of a lack of interest <laughs> in the, in the uh, in game one that I don't expect to see tonight. I, I think they'll take tonight's game a little more seriously, but I agree with you. I'd have to lean toward the Nuggets tonight, too. It'll be a tighter game. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Lean to the Nuggets. That's pretty remarkable. We'll see because I wasn't confident the series coming in, but boy, game one certainly made things different. Thanks for uh, joining us today. Kyle Fredrickson of the Denver Gazette joined us. Uh, thanks for everyone who interacted on the calls and text lines. Always appreciate that. Danny Bailey's the man in the booth that makes everything sound good. Andrew Depp for making us look better over there at milehighsports.com slash watch. And for all of you listening on the app, uh, thank you. Way to get out of the curve. Crystal clear sound whenever you want. Everything is on demand. We'll be back tomorrow with more. Looking forward to breaking down the Nuggets game two. Maybe looking at a 2-0 lead. Can you believe that? Maybe so. We'll find out when we're back tomorrow for Sandy Clough. I'm Sean Drotar. Thanks for joining us on Mile High Sports. Saw the ghost of El